According to literary critic and theorist Barbara Johnson, the apostrophe has primacy in the grammar of the woman's body, the mind-body of a woman responsible for another brain and body. Using the subject of lyric poetry in order to get at the problem of maternity, Johnson writes the apostrophe as the grammar point of induction. The apostrophe produces, or rather facilitates the production of, the lyric poem by identifying and manifesting the relationship between speech and speaker, speaker and subject that is spoken. Johnson writes, Apostrophe involves the direct address of an absent, dead, or inanimate being by a first-person speaker. O wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being. Apostrophe is thus both direct and indirect, based etymologically on the notion of turning aside, of digressing from straight speech. It manipulates the I-thou structure of direct address in an indirect, fictionalized way. The absent, dead, or inanimate entity addressed is thereby made present, animate, and anthropomorphic. Apostrophe is a form of ventriloquism through which the speaker throws voice, life, and human form into the addressee, turning its silence into mute responsiveness. I can think of nothing more resonant with this than the experience of having a fetus in my body. In the case of pregnancy, the abyss of the uterus requires a hermeneutic, so I, the pregnant person, can survive it. The apostrophe is that hermeneutic. But hermeneutics and interpretation mean the same thing. To say or utter, to explain, to translate. Let's be even more specific. It seems difficult to speak of this grammar of the creative subject in a sonic medium. So let's think about how the apostrophe sounds. Subjects, mothers, childs, bodieses, fetuses, ezes... The Ezez? Let's call the Johnsonian apostrophe the Ezez now, for the purposes of thinking about pregnancy. The pregnancy produced by the Ezez. Pregnant poemses. Poem Ezez. Pregnancy is a fully body, fully brained, fully sensate process, harnessing all of the realms of experience toward the creation of a relationship. As a result, this process cannot just be notated by the concept of the apostrophe, but the apostrophe made manifest. The apostrophe applied. The Ezez. When my fetus moves, I'm forced to identify an imagined motivation. This is the narrative imperative. My Ezez-induced fantasy that my baby has a consciousness that resembles my own enough that I can fantasize. I know that he moves after I eat or drink something. I also know that he moves when I am lying down, when I am sitting on the bus, when I am writing this monologue. He moves because he moves. I should respect the inscrutability of this being's motives, but still, I try to scrut. I feel compelled to scrut. Dissatisfied just letting my body feel and notice, I must ascribe meaning. What is the meaning of this? How am I not myself? How am I not myself? Myself. Myself. How am I not myself? 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 He moves because he likes chili. He moves because he hears the music at the concert I'm attending and feels afraid. He's dancing. The strongest urge I have is to ascribe likes and dislikes, and this is the tendency of which I am most afraid. What came first, the music or the misery? 
People worry about kids playing with guns or watching violent videos. Some sort of culture of violence will take them over. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Which of us is the monster? Which of me is the monster? There is something monstrous about this whole arrangement. The ezes, the apostrophe that molds your body into an apostrophe. Head and belly merge into that thick bulb at the top, limbs curling inward for the rest. I'm becoming a monster. You monster! My monster myself. Just me and my monster. Me and my monster! monster. Straight of the narrow. For Johnson, the monstrous is fundamentally relational. For our purposes, the monstrous, like the Ezes, names and performs the ambiguity of the pregnant state. Judith Butler describes Johnsonian theory. For Johnson, lyric poetry is summed up in the figure of the apostrophe, which means that it engages the questions of what lives and what dies, what is animated and what is not. But instead of giving us fine and fast distinctions between life and death, it articulates another intermediate zone, one in which the sure distinction between the two cannot hold. What all this really means is that the apostrophe is the signifier and in fact instance a signification itself in the act of creation. It marks the straddle line between subject and subject's subject, mother and child, woman writer and woman writing. This is a chimeric line, the pregnant person as chimera. A chimera is a kind of monster. The chimera is a writer, that writing has a life of its own. The chimera is the monstrous relationship between writer and writing. You're... You're a monster. In a glowering exegesis on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Johnson exposes the inadequacies of, typically male, interpretations of monstrosity in the novel. Johnson considers Frankenstein as a kind of autobiography of motherhood, more specifically, of Shelley's relationship to motherhood. Shelley suffered through an unwanted pregnancy that ended with the death of the child, and then had a child who died young at 18. Shelley's own mother was ambivalent at best about maternity, and Shelley barely knew her. Baylor, I hardly know her. Johnson identifies Victor Frankenstein's rejection of his offspring as a kind of postpartum depression, redolent of Shelley's mother life. But how do you really reject something that is a part of you? I don't think of motherhood and pregnancy as abject, because objection has to be expelled. Pregnancy is unalienable. It is the containing of that which cannot be contained but must be. Well, hmm. I guess pregnancy is the realization of abjection par excellence. The realization that people live with what they can't live with all the time. To dream the impossible dream. To fight the unbeatable foe. I cannot tell you the number of times I have fantasized over these past 35 weeks. What if my belly button was a plug and I could just unplug it and drain even just a few pounds of amniotic fluid? Keep the baby, just take out the bath water. I'm drowning in bath water. Another version of this monologue would consider pregnancy in relationship to prosthesis and disability. For now, I shall end with this. The Ezez is the poetics of the almost, the realization of what I can't have through the containment of what I hope to have, to have and to have not, my monster, my apostrophe. Welcome back to Noisy Ghost. Woo! I am Eleanor Russell. I am here with my usual co-ghosts, Andre Kello. Hello. And Eric Wenzel. Boo. And our special, special ghost today is Shannon Knoll. Hi. Hello, and we are here to discuss pregnancy, both as a felt and lived experience, and also a pop culture and phenomenal phenomenon. Uh, it's a pop culture <laughs> phenomenon. Pop, pop culture, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> because I realized, um, <clears throat> of like while I've been pregnant the past eight months, that there is very little discussion of pregnancy in the podcast world. Does that surprise you? Uh, not one bit. <laughs> well, what about 
Well, there's that one bad mother one. But then they're like, we're not a podcast about... Well, I guess they're a parenting podcast. Yeah, they're but they're also like, we're not a parenting podcast. We're a comedy podcast about Right, whatever, right, right. You know? Well, there are parenting podcasts in the sense that there's like self-help podcasts, I think. Sure. But there's not really like... Um, like which Cheez-Its to get or whatever. Or they're like... Get the dusty ones. Get the dusty, <laughs> get the dusty Cheez-Its. There's like... There's like... Yeah, there's like parenting ones and like... But there's never not a whole lot about like the experience of pregnancy or like the act of reproduction. I guess I don't know. Well, I guess there's like jokes about fucking, but that's different. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, I feel like it's a lot of podcasts are pretty male heavy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And then the women who do them are usually like single young women. Yeah, single young women out in the town. There's also a lot less pregnancy than there used to be. You know, people are having fewer kids. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Andre has done extensive research in this. Okay, lay it on me. Because I thought I, the last I heard, the population is exploding um, and we don't have enough food. Or we do, we would have enough food if we were responsible, but instead we're giving it all to almonds, all the water to almonds. (laughs) To Greg Almond? Because he's dead. He's not going to use any more No, Mark Almond. He's not going to use any more uh, almonds. (laughs) Mark Almond of... uh, Soft cell. Okay. No. Uh, okay, that's great. It's okay. a it's a complicated question. A lot of people uh, are, you know, uh, terrorized by this anxiety that they have, this Malthusian fear that the world is going to end because we're going to eat all the food, because the people keep reproducing, and and mostly this is just racism. Well, there's all those right, single right. ladies on podcasts being like, oh, my God, I'm going to eat all the food. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all those podcasts of single ladies being like, eating all the dusty yeah. cheeses. <laughs> Are you talking about cheese nips, the ones that have the little powder on it? I'm talking oh. about, you know, there's like these new cheese its that are like white cheddar. Oh. oh, those are good. I like those. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to eat all those. <laughs> That's how we're going to be out. So different places have different uh, reproductive rates, which is the average number of children that a woman will have over the course of her life. Uh, In some places, it's a very high number. In some places, it's a very low number. Places like uh, Japan and Finland, you know, it's below what's called the uh, replacement rate, which is to say that uh, women are typically having fewer than two children over the course of their life. What that means is that the uh, native population in these places is decreasing. Uh, the populations are getting older, and there are all sorts of um, consequences to that, economic consequences, cultural consequences. Uh, in the United States, uh, the reproductive rate is just a little bit below replacement rate, but we have a very high immigration rate, and so our population does in- increase. But uh, this may not always be the case. It's possible to imagine a scenario in the future in which uh, the reproductive rate drops so low that even a high immigration rate won't be enough to keep the population from falling over time. And uh, what we could see as a result of that would be things like what's currently occurring in uh, Japan and in places in Scandinavia where there aren't enough children to fill the schools, there aren't enough young people to fill the universities. And um, there aren't enough young workers to provide uh, for the health care and for the support of the elderly. Uh, there are a lot of really unfortunate consequences to uh, population decline, especially when it's related to a declining pregnancy rate. Hmm. That's true. So we're outsourcing our children just like everything else. Yeah. Is it possible? I mean... It seems like we can't always keep expanding. Like at some point, population would have to like stop growing or decrease at some point. Right. Like there are probably like there are natural lulls in populations going back throughout history. Right. It's, yeah. When we run yeah. out of food and kill each other and starve to death. Sure. There's the, an anxiety that if there's a um, some sort of a resource crisis, like say you know global warming causes massive climate change and. Uh, the Midwest becomes a desert and there's no more corn or wheat anymore. Or, you know, the polar ice caps melt and uh, the uh, Atlantic current uh, vanishes, which causes New York City and London to be under a, 
500 meter high glacier. And then finally, Chicago will be the biggest, most important city. <laughs> yeah, second city no <laughs> more. Yeah, suck it, New York. <laughs> yeah. What if you're under a glacier now? <laughs> but then I, I'm like, that's what I use. We all secretly hope that. But then you're also like, oh, then it's going to be like Oklahoma City, like comes out of nowhere. And then they're Ugh. like, that's where the center of, of movies and culture and whatever is. And you're like, Lord how did that happen? <laughs> we were in line. But the, it could just as easily go the other way, you know. It's as much of a crisis to not have enough babies as it is to have too many. Uh, if the resources aren't there, then you end up with, uh, you know, war and uh, economic uh, problems, you know, because the prices of uh, consumer goods skyrocket. But if there aren't enough workers to provide, then all of a sudden... Holy shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Just uh, Luigi. <laughs> Luigi's getting real in terms of uh, the topic. Okay, good. Luigi's the dog. Yeah. It's, yeah. Don't feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm just surprised. Don't shame him. <laughs> yeah. So I'm jealous. I guess. I guess it's sort of. I mean, you're a good boy. The ways that people discuss pregnancy uh, more often than not in contemporary popular culture, I guess, is. I think in relationship to people's fear of not eventually getting pregnant, like, or like people's anxiety about becoming pregnant or how they're trying not to become pregnant. If they do become pregnant, like, I feel like there's a ton of abortion stories, which is great. We should totally have abortion stories. That's awesome. But I'm sort of interested in thinking about, about the anxiety of a sort of obsolete human process. Like, cause I, I'm the only pregnant person i know in my like everyday friend life which is really weird i think for most pregnant people so like for me it seems like i'm doing this like really old-fashioned like old-timey thing like oh that's so vintage like <laughs> but what a, oh that's such a vintage way of getting a baby yeah, yeah. like uh, yeah exactly like it feels really weird like because the only people i know in my daily life that are interested in having kids are like gay dudes yeah. weirdly and they're not gonna get pregnant so it's like I feel it's so it's just so weird to me. So I don't really know how to. I feel like I'm in a unique position in my current life. We should to trade. give insight into this. Everyone but... I know is getting married and having babies. Really? Yeah. I feel like I have uh, my friends from growing up are all pregnant. Yeah. But they don't live in Chicago. They're like. Yeah, everybody I know was when I was a kid in South Carolina. They're all on their third or fourth kid by now. Oh yeah. Yeah. So is this like what the media would call like a creative class issue? I think so, actually. Yeah. It's, well, yeah, it definitely probably. doesn't help when people go to college and they end up with $100,000 in student loan debt. And then how are they <laughs> supposed to like afford enough space to have a baby like, or, you know, buy, have health insurance in order to get pregnant or, yeah. you know, there are a million things that are that about the the lifestyle of, of people who are like us, you know, yeah. uh, lame jerks. <laughs> lame jerks where it's just Wait, is that a thing is that a th or do you just mean lame jerks it's, it's not like an acronym it's not oh, an oh. initialism <laughs> that's what it was well the way you said it made it kind yeah. of sound like it was like the, la <laughs> the like lame a, jerks you know yeah like dinks double income no kids <laughs> oh yeah. yeah yeah they're totally moving into this neighborhood and taking over the lame jerks yeah <laughs> though i think that when we we used to live in brooklyn uh in in bushwick the the you could see this sort of transformation of these neighborhoods as they were being gentrified where first these um broke young uh art people would move in and they would uh you know live in squalor in cheap apartments and then the rent would go up and they couldn't afford to live there anymore and they would be replaced with uh you know rich kids on trust funds and then the neighborhood wouldn't be cool anymore and they would leave and they would be replaced by young parents of yeah. wealthy professionals i remember seeing some that in crown heights a little bit when we lived there too like there were lots of parents i knew that lived in crown heights right and yeah. so these what used to be like the hippest coolest neighborhood parents, I mean. would end up being filled with tons of little itty bitsy babies with names like edith and power <laughs> yeah power <laughs> yeah oh god i knew it was changing when I was working in Park Slope and I heard someone yell out Eleanor and it was to a toddler and I was like, oh yeah, 
I'm not the, that's like, that's like that's like an old time because it was weird that my name is Eleanor and it's like really weird that there's like a two year old now <laughs> named Eleanor. I love the idea of just like a playpen full of like Ediths and Eleanors and Myrtles, and Gretchens, <laughs> and, yeah, Mabels. And, and, yeah. Mabel is a that's not. I, I actually have I. But I that's, have a student named Mabel. I but that's to. like the the kind of go to like you know far side old lady from the fifties. Yeah, Mabel. Aunt Mabel. But that at one time there was right. that was the little kid name. Yeah. Do you guys do you guys ever hear the name Dorcas? I was just gonna say Dorcas. <laughs> Greek name. That's crazy. I was. My best friend's grandmother was named Dorcas. Now that's also not an acronym. No. <laughs> the man from Dorcas. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. <laughs> so um. You know, there are a lot of reasons that people stopped having kids, but, um, you know, they weren't all economic. Uh, at oh. least part of it, I think, <laughs> and maybe I'm crazy, is the uh, post-war nihilism. You know, the atom bomb. People terrified of bringing a child into a world that they don't want to live in. You know, Cold War anxiety was a real problem for people for a really long time, and now it's even worse. What are you talking about? There was a baby boom in the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That wasn't about the atom bomb. It wasn't like, boom, all the babies are gone. Right, yeah. there was a baby boom after the war when all the soldiers came home. And, yeah. Because they were, like, thankful to be alive, and they were like... Right, and then... Let's the, make more alive. Yeah. Well, they talk <laughs> about that, like, right? Like, crises are, like, uh, all these... There's all these birth rate spikes, like, when, when, like, people survive a crisis, and then they have this, like reproductive urge or something where they're like life must go on or something there is a thing i heard uh, that when people are in grief they get horny really yeah hmm that hmm. makes sense yeah wanting but to I feel think close to somebody maybe i don't know people often yeah. get horny though <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> of things that make people horny could be incidental but, yeah. but grief's not one you would think all right i think it's i mean i think it's like if people are dying then it would make sense, right? That like this is like you want to replace them. This is pop science that I yeah. have heard from people that have heard from people, but like yeah. it would make sense that if people are dying, that you want to replace them. But also, it was easy after the war for soldiers to have a lot of babies. They had all these resources, that right? Were being they had the given GI Bill. Yeah. They were given home loans to uh, buy houses in the suburbs. You know, they had the, the pick of the women because most of the other competition had been killed overseas. There was this enormous <laughs> economic boom because uh, America was the only place that wasn't uh, decimated by bombs. So, you know, there were tons of reasons, practical reasons for there to be a, a baby boom immediately afterward. But then there was this malaise. That that was the word, I think, that, uh, that wasn't used in Jimmy Carter's malaise speech, where he talks about how in the late 70s, uh, America felt like it was just a big bunch of losers, and and nobody wanted to do anything. And and, and yeah, it was called the Eric Wenzel speech. <laughs> it was a ambition had gone because there was there was a, a serious doubt that there was going to be a significant future for anyone. And you know I think that you see a lot of that, especially in '90s culture, that's so heavily mm. uh, apathetic and nihilist. I think the reason I worry about this, because I think the reason actually one of the main reasons that I chose to get pregnant was maybe because of spite, because I have this <laughs> not this is nothing to do with, with the father. Of, I have this friend that's with barren the, and I just wanted to rub it in her face. <laughs> no, is a well, I, I you know, I'm in academia. I'm a Ph.D. student a candidate. Uh, and I found that. Like, is that because you're done with your coursework? Yes. And you passed? I passed my exams. That's so why I'm a like... candidate. Yeah. Um, and I used to not care about those titles until they became relevant to me. And now, no, now I, know, I, now I noticed I that. Care. No, I noticed that recently because I'm, I'm staring down that long hallway. And I was like, why do some people in the program, their signature is candidate. student one's candidate? Because like when you're in the MFA thing, like you're all, you're like you're all the same. someone someone comes up with that idea when they have an apartment show that their like bio is going to say MFA candidate. Uh, and then everyone's like, oh, they sound so much more professional. But yeah, I this is to, an actual. No. Rite of and passage. I used to think I used to even think it was pretentious when people did when people did it. Uh, but now that I actually went through my qualifying exams, I'm like, no, right. it's not it's actually pretentious. Deal, right? It actually matters. That means that you just are you're working on your thesis I'm working, right now. Yeah, I'm ABD, essentially. Yeah, you should start signing your your business cards or whatever that instead of saying PhD candidate, just say ABD. Yes. Um, and then what ABB, all but baby. Yes, all and but born. So, and I noticed, and there are. I have a very. I'm very lucky to have a very kid friendly department. Like there are moms and dads in my program, mostly moms because it's like a 
like 90% women. But um, I was like aware of like when I was in my MA program at Brooklyn College, I had a professor tell me to be careful if I wanted to have a child one day and that it, it was like I would have to make it was possible, but it's extremely difficult. And, you know, I'm better off not doing it if I wanted to advance my career. And I was like, this lady told me no. I was so upset. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, God. And so part of the reason I was like, oh, man, I want I want to I want to do it just so I can like make just so I can personally play a role in shifting policies for helping moms in academia, because it's like bullshit that even that that would be difficult. It like made me really angry that like something would be denied me, like a major life experience would be denied me because just because I'm a woman in academia. Because they would sure. never say that to a dude. Yeah, they would ever. never be like, don't get a lady pregnant because... Yeah. they would. It would never happen. So that was part of it, was spite. Um, but well, also because I, I, I wanted to be a mom and, and bring a child into the world and make the world a better place through my child. But, you know. Well, we most, have considered most... the name Spite for the child. <laughs> yeah. A... That would be an awesome name for a kid. It'd yeah. be like, Spite, get over here. <laughs> yeah. It's very butch. It's a very butch name. Would it be with a Y? Spite. No, it would be S-P-E-I-G-H-T. Spite. (laughs) But then people would think its name is like Spite. 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 It could be Spite. I'm so (laughs) spicy. I don't know. That'd be a totally different kid. (laughs) So question for the team. Um, What is your relationship to maternity or motherhood? Is there a time in your life where you have felt what you imagine to be a sort of motherly feeling or a maternal or paternal or any sort of caretaking feeling towards a thing that made you like feel a certain way about it or did you hate it like because sometimes like <laughs> taking care of something sucks you know and you're like oh i don't mm. want to do that i guess i feel that way towards my cat <laughs> this is- oh yeah yeah i uh i get resentful though pretty quickly where i'm like you I feel like I, I enjoy taking care of creatures, but then... What's your cat's name? Tell us about your cat first. The cat's name is Ripley. <gasps> She's a rescue. From Alien, like Ripley? Mm-hmm. Ah! Sorry. <laughs> this is all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> Although you're like, what if I was like sitting here in an yeah. alien shirt and I have like, <laughs> I have like Sigourney Weaver's uh, perm. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> you just turn, you, you more. I just am. I'm like, I just am, but... Yeah. So rescue Ripley. Yeah, she was uh, when I got her. I got her as a foster cat, and she hid under a bed for two months straight. Oh, buddy. So, yeah, I know. And I was like supposed to have her for two weeks, and I was like, well, I can't get her out from under the bed, so I guess she's gonna live here for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just spend a lot of time like talking to her and trying to coax her out, and eventually I fell asleep, and I came out, and she was watching me sleep. <laughs> which is terrifying yeah. but i was like this cat is so creepy i love it uh and i ended up adopting her oh cool. so really you were you were ripley and she was like newt yeah which one's newt i do i named my cat that but then i don't know the oh, movies that well oh what's the second one the little girl the little girl oh, newt, the, yeah yeah because she won't talk and like everyone else is like whoa we're marines <laughs> and then she's like no we got you know she mm-hmm. like in the first one, she rescues the cat, Jones. The, yeah. Literally the save the mm-hmm. cat moment, which is why yeah. that, that's the best alien. Yeah. But it is, I mean, the, I, that's why I was all excited you brought that up, because I'm a cat guy. Yeah. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about alien and aliens and all that. The and, alien has a big pregnancy. Yeah. 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 Though, uh, you know, people have talked a lot about the relationship that movie has to pregnancy, but the guy who wrote the script said that he was inspired by his uh, problems with IBS. That really? He felt like there really? Was, yeah, that there was a, a no. It was it was Crohn's disease. Crohn's <laughs> disease. He had a, a a a lot of pain, and he said he felt like something was trying to burst out of his chest. Wow. And then he wrote that scene uh, based on the the nightmares he would have from the pain. Wow. Wow. I wonder. I thought it was. It's also based off those wasps that mm. lay their yeah. eggs in living things. Yeah. Mm. But it, it does, I mean, it has, well, it has two interesting things because it's the the anxiety about impregnation and the, like, terror of it, right? But then mm-hmm. it's also about family or, like, particularly, like, adoption. 
Yeah. Because the first one's like Ripley because everyone else on the crew dies and everything, but it's like that's why it's so important to save that cat, but it's like the cat is like this the mascot and the soul of the ship. And yeah. it's like I might like it's a very maternal thing like cuz she'll like she risks life and limb or she's like you know, we need to win. Like I'm not not without the cat. And then in the second one, then it's like a human child that she, you know, by the end is calling her mommy. Yeah. And it's this sort of like. Isn't there one where, the, is it the third or fourth one where there's the alien that's part human? Like it's part Ripley and part uh, alien. The fourth one. Uh, resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is a recurring which, which in, that in, gets more and more I say it's non-canon, but. As the, as the series goes on, it becomes more about the idea of reproduction. I Until yeah. you get to the most recent one that just came out where a, a very significant theme is about this robot guy who is jealous of humanity's ability to reproduce mm. and so creates the alien out of that Which is jealousy. sort of the, like, Prometheus or Frankenstein story. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the postmodern Prometheus. The, yeah. the modern Prometheus. Modern Prometheus. <laughs> I'm the postmodern, postmodern Prometheus. Prometheus. <laughs> this is the remix. Um, yeah, so you feel... Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, like the relationship between like maternity and like feeling like something is separate from you. And like, I think a big part of pregnancy and maternity is um, accepting and incorporating into your sense of self. The fact that there is this thing separate from you that you are now responsible for. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's like sort of the chimera idea that I was trying to get at in my monologue where it's like a chimera is uh, a sort of combination or hybrid of two things, but neither really overtakes the other. They're like, they just like coexist yeah. as one thing. The Prometheus story is a sort of uh, story about um, taking responsibility, right? It's about taking on this incredible power and then the responsibility that you have to that power. And like the the creation of life is this extraordinary responsibility. But also it's like the atom bomb right because right yeah the atom bomb was this thing where humanity created this thing that had the power to destroy them and the way that the bomb worked or at least the little boy bomb uh there were two bombs uh that fat were man fat man and little boy right what was one named fat man oh my yeah. god yeah. choose your fighter yeah fat man worked uh this is a little nerdy but the fat man worked uh by implosion a number of bombs, compression, tiny bombs were placed around a, a sphere of plutonium and uh, they detonated inward to create this uh, nuclear fission uh, reaction. That, that Yeah, de- because they found they couldn't get enough dynamite to make an explosion. And then they had this sort of aha moment where they were like, if we <laughs> like, what if it them? blows inward instead yeah. of what if the. Instead of blowing right, the initial on the inside. The initial idea was a hollow sphere of plutonium, and then they decided a solid core that they would uh, explode inward. So instead of exploding outward into right. the plutonium, they right just crushed it. Yeah, and th- and this worked much more effectively. And but the alternate one, actually, the uh, the little boy bomb worked much the way that uh, pregnancy works. Uh, there is it was called the scientists fucked a bomb (laughs) (laughs) it was called the uh, gun type Uh, oh yeah and the way it works is that a uh, a projectile of fissile material is uh is shot toward a um a core and that when the two meet they create the nuclear explosion right and this was impractical in a lot of ways when they were first designing it, but eventually they were able to create. The and one. that's inside the bomb. It has a, it shoots itself inside of itself. Right. The the little boy um, was sort of like a like that's why they call it a gun type because it has this barrel, and um, and so you know you could. Think so they of, drop this apparatus that that has the setup of a gun shooting at an orange or whatever. Right. Like, it, it, and then at that moment they're like, "Do it!" And then it shoots itself inside of itself, and that's where it explodes. Yeah. And that Over. and that creates the explosion, yeah. And uh, were they shooting the plutonium at the dynamite or the other way around? Oh, uh, they were shooting uh, the uh, gun type uses uranium two thirty five, so they weren't using any plutonium. In order to make a bomb that was gun type with plutonium, they would have had to have a bomb that was larger than the airplane that was supposed to carry it. Right. So uh, they had to use two uh, uranium two thirty five, and until they figured that out, they thought that they would never figure out the bomb. 
It, we almost didn't. Uh, oh, a man, lot of, damn it. <laughs> I know, right? Like, oh. Well, Germany didn't. Germany gave up. A, a lot of... Well, because they lost their best scientist because he came over to America and was like, dude, let's build a bomb. The Soviets were trying to build the bomb for years, and, and they weren't able to succeed until they were able to get uh, the Americans... A politician to fucking accidentally explain it, and that broke it open for them. That's not even a joke. Yeah. Was it... It was like totally this like casual, like, oh, I don't know, like a G20 summit or something. Like, it was yeah. totally some guy... Uh, like casually said something that like he didn't even understand or whatever. And then the Russians were like, holy shit, that's the answer we needed to build nuclear bombs. Oh, great. So cool. That mm. totally couldn't happen now though. No. Right. No. We're totally safe now. A hundred percent. I think Trump gave Russia America's iCloud passwords. He was all these speaks in his passwords. It's called boner King. I mean, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> Trump doesn't listen to this podcast. But there is a way in which having a child is a inherently uh, optimistic project, right? You're, yeah. If you're choosing to have a child, you're... It's also inherently violent. It's also like it's impinging upon the world, this right. creation that the world didn't ask to exist. Also... Also, we're responsible for all of the suffering that this child is going to experience. Yeah. I think the world did life. ask for it to exist, right? I mean, that's like procreation. That's like the most nature-driven thing. All yeah. the way down to like viruses. Yeah. From the biggest sperm whale to the smallest sperm virus. Sperm virus. That's another name. Sperm virus. For, that's what oh, yeah, it's like going to be like... named. <laughs> A sperm virus. <laughs> yeah. Did you have... I'm, we kind of got sidetracked from the cat story, <laughs> which I really want to hear more about. I mean, bombs and cats. They're very close. They, yeah, they go off in the middle of the night and cause terror. No, I'm just in love with the I, the reason I was just in love with the idea of how like something the thing that I care the most about is related to the movie Alien. You know, yeah, like, that's that's perfect. It was, that's yeah, amazing. it was like we couldn't plan it better. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, so, but she she came out and she was watching you sleep, and then that's how you two fell in love. Basically, yeah. I actually took her back to the shelter for a little bit and took home another rescue cat because mm-hmm. um, she was just a foster that's right. she's a foster yeah so they wanted to get her out because she was so socially inept that they were like she needs to be alone so i brought her back and then i couldn't like stop thinking about her and i brought back this other cat and she was still there because she's uh not very social and mm-hmm. uh, she climbed up on me and i was like all right that's it she's mine mm-hmm. that's very sweet yeah she's- but does it like there are parts of it that suck though right yeah, well, I'm not, I feel very, I get burdened very easily where I don't like, like as soon as something is reliant on me, I get very mad at it. <laughs> so mm. there's a part of it, but I like, cats are like the most simple of burdens because they don't require that much. Mm-hmm. So she would hate it, I think, if I were home all the time. Um, but when I am home, she's fine. Mm-hmm. Should we raise our child like a, a cat with a dish and a, a litter box? Well, I do like this sort of, I think it's really healthy. And I wish that American child rearing was more like this, where it was okay to just like let a child hang out by itself instead of like watching its every freaking move. Yeah. Like, I mean, I worked as a nanny in New York for four years and it like you get to be there's a, the dynamic that you get with the kid that you work with, especially if it's just the one of them is like I almost felt like we were co-workers a lot like we were just like like my job was to like plan our day and make sure that everybody was like attended to and had all their needs met but like a lot of it was just like us like spending time together like trying to figure out how to make the time pass and like I kind of think that's a so I kind of thought it was kind of a healthy attitude to have because it was like we're working together on this project yes I have to help you like tie your shoes or get dressed or remind you to finish your breakfast or whatever but like we're still just trying to like get through this time. Like we're working together on this. And as a result, there's a certain autonomy that you develop um, as you, as one would with your coworkers, ironically. So I kind of, I don't know. I kind of like that. And I kind of hope to cultivate that with my child too, where I'm not just like fawning over him all the time or like obsessing over whether or not he's like what, what he's doing or watching him all the time. Well, you know, I know that tendency and all that desire will be there. I, I also want it to be okay for us to just like 
be alone together sometimes and just like because i thought that some of those like being alone together moments with the kids i was where i was looking after were like really special i think you're just, sort of doing that now right yeah what do you mean what you and i are being alone together oh Everybody's... you and the child oh yeah oh yeah yeah i think that's true we're definitely being alone together all day long you mean like unstructured time not necessarily. Like, there can be, like, a, an activity that we're both working on or that the kid is working on and I'm just sort of, like, a witness to it or just sort of spending time by myself. But it's not... You're just, like, not talking to each we're other. We're just, like, not talking to each other. We're just, like... Mm. Like, he'll be working on building a thing and sometimes I'll come in or help, if, you know, when I'm babysitting or, or whatever. And then... but Or other times I'll just be, like, you know, doing the dishes or doing whatever it is around the house. And I... I don't know. There were, like unfathomably intimate in a certain sense just like letting someone you know look after themselves for like a precious few minutes even because it's also like a thing that i think kids need because kids have so little control over their own lives Mm -hmm. like they have nothing so when it's like i think that's like why in some ways that kids are so obsessed with like the ipad or like um electronics is because it's like oh finally something i can do by myself (laughs) like like i just like manipulate the touch screen you know and it's like and i think that's in some way part of why they're so into it this is what rousseau had said about um about raising kids he he wrote a book called a meal or uh an education and he says that you can't teach anybody anything and that all you can do is create an environment in which they can teach themselves things Mm-hmm. And so the most important interaction that a parent has with a child is in creating uh, a conducive environment. And he suggests a country home. He, he yeah, just, right. Uh, fam- famously um, uh, misanthropic. He thought everybody was a bunch of jerks. Bunch of, lame jerks. Bunch of lame jerks. And, uh, and so he was like, the best thing you can do for a kid is to make sure there's nobody anywhere. Because people are terrible and people will just... Uh, fill the kid with bad ideas and you know will subject this child to suffering and if only people were separated from each other it would be possible for them to live together Mm -hmm. so i think he would imagine that the the being alone together is the ideal uh human interaction like when you're both hanging out but you're reading or yeah writing and then the other person's cooking or something yeah yeah, like, I like that. That seems like a very French parenting philosophy, too. Because when we were in France, I would see the way that, uh, like, your relatives would interact with their kids. And their kids would just be playing around. And, like, no one was just, like, staring at them the whole time. The kids were just allowed to just, like, play by themselves. And it was like, I, that would never happen with my nephews. Like, we would just be sitting there, like, <laughs> staring like at them the entire oh, yeah. time. I, yeah. was, I was neglected from the moment I was born. And I turned out great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you were born in the South. <laughs> yes. I, I have. I found a quote that I'd like to read. Okay. This, this is what you were doing this whole time. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, cool I didn't want to just say, oh, and then I can't remember this and that. That's why I brought the iPad. Okay. Um, and you'll like it because it's got an apostrophe. Good. Um, this is, uh, today's reading is from Time Quake by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's about this. He's talking about. A short story called No Laughing Matter that written by Kilgore Trout. Um, and so he, he wrote it and threw it away before no one could see it. And then because of the time quake, he had to do it again. But he's like, whatever. So No Laughing Matter got its title from what the judge in the story said during a top secret court martial of the crew of the American bomber Joy's Pride on the Pacific island of Bonalulu. One month after the end of the war of end of World War Two, Joy's Pride itself was perfectly OK and in a hangar there on Bonalulu. It was named in honor of the pilot's mother, Joy Peterson, a nurse and an obstetrician. Obstetrician? An obstetrics hospital. Close. (laughs) (laughs) She was a nurse in obstetrics in a hospital in Corpus Christi, Texas. Pride had had a double meaning. It meant self-respect. It meant a lion family, too. Here's the thing. After the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and another one was dropped on Nagasaki, Joy's Pride was ordered to drop yet another one on Yokohama on a couple million, uh, quote-unquote, little yellow bastards. The little little yellow bastards were called, quote-unquote, little yellow bastards back then because it was wartime. 
Trout described the third atom bomb like this. A purple motherfucker as big as a boiler in the basement of a mid-sized junior high school. It was too big to fit inside the bomb bay. It was slung underneath the plane's belly and cleared the runway by a foot when Joy's pride took off into the wild blue yonder. As the plane neared its target, the pilot mused out loud on the intercom that his mother, the obstetrics nurse, would be a celebrity back home after they did what they were about to do. The bomber Nola Gay and the woman in whose honor it was named had become as famous as the movie stars after it dropped its load on Hiroshima. Yokohama was twice as populous as Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. The more the pilot thought about it, though, the surer he was that his sweet widowed mother could never tell reporters she was happy that her son's airplane had killed a world's record number of civilians all at once. Trout's story reminds me of the time in my late... Okay, then it keeps going. Whatever. That's also in the story. The crewman aboard Joy's Pride, at any rate, told the pilot on the intercom that they felt as much as he did. They were all alone up there in the sky. They didn't need, to f they didn't need a fighter escort since the Japanese didn't have any airplanes left. The war was over, except for the paperwork, arguably, the situation even before Nola Gay cremated Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. To quote Kilgore Trout, this wasn't war anymore, and neither had been the obliteration of Nagasaki. Uh, uh, uh. The end, though, is the part that I like. So basically, which I can't... Oh. The pilot of Joy's Pride made a U-turn way up in the sky. The purple motherfucker was still slung underneath. The pilot headed back to Bonalulu. He did it, wrote Trout. About 10 blocks from here, and then again by the product of the city's public schools. Huh? Oh, did this thing... Oh, it did the thing where it deletes pages on Google. So basically, they're up in the sky, and he's like, uh, you know, they're, we're going to drop it on these, you know, racial epithets. Yeah. And then they're like, well, my mom will be famous. Then he's like, I don't think my mom would like me to do this. And the yeah. other guys are like, no, this is terrible. So they turn around, and then the, the kind of climax of the story is everyone at the airfield freaking out because they're flying this plane back that has a giant atomic bomb strapped to the bottom of it. And then that's why they get court-martialed. Mm. But I, I don't know, just talking about nuclear bombs and all that. Yeah. and then the idea, tricks nurse mm. and yeah. Yeah, and, right. then, yeah. and then being like, you know. We're not the only people to draw these connections. I mean, yeah. a lot of people do. I, the most recent episode of Twin Peaks was a, yeah. pretty much a, a, an hour-long montage on the subject of nuclear uh, bombs and uh, birth. Yeah. You know, you see the, the Bob, the, you know, the horrible. The cat? No, no. The, the monstrous uh, id, My cat's a monster. The Oedipal <laughs> father character. Oh. Uh, born out of the nuclear explosion. Like, trapped inside so the nucleus Laura. of the bomb. Uh, I don't think that that's... Well, I mean, it's hard to say what anything means in that show. <laughs> Remember at the very end, and then it's Laura. Yeah, but Laura came out of the um, the tall guy... Uh, who oh, had true. the, the sure, gold sure, sure. sparks That's out right, of his I mouth. forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Are you making wow. this shit up? No, <laughs> not, I have not watched the new oh, Twin dude, Peaks. You gotta check it out, it's great. What about the part where Agent Cooper's waltzing with a horse? I feel like, are you just saying things? <sighs> I, well, that that's the Simpsons making fun of. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> Homer's watching it and they're, he's waltzing with a horse and then and Homer's like, this is brilliant. I don't understand. Yeah. I have no idea what's happening. Yeah. I know that's supposed to be like satire or like a criticism. Like, oh, this is brilliant. I don't understand it. Like, ha ha, how could something be brilliant if you don't understand it? But I'm like, there are so many brilliant things that I don't understand. I don't know. I think that's Yeah, that, it's like the sense yeah. of yeah. awe because you're like... Yeah. What is this thing? But it's like amazing. Instead of like you know already what you're looking well, at. This is something I hope that we're able to teach the kid about. You know, yeah. it's like to to see something complicated and to think I want to know more and not I hate whoever put this in front of me. There was this thing to that point. There's this thing that Andre and I saw at the Madison the Madison Museum of Art, the M M M M the <laughs> Madison Museum of Contemporary. Art. Yeah, M Mocha, Mocha, and uh, they had this after the exhibit there was like a chalkboard that people could write down their reactions to the thing and i think and so there was a prompt and i think the prompt said like uh what do you care about and then people would write down what they care about most of it's kids like kids would like draw a picture of a dog or like yeah someone wrote pasta which i was into one kid wrote lamar ball <laughs> yeah yeah lamar ball and then this but then clearly this like then someone wrote the extinction of pretension that was Oof. just like Oh no, uh -huh. someone didn't understand the art and felt sad about it. Like, it was just so, like, I was like, oh God, what a lonely life. Like, what a thing yeah. to, like, go and experience a thing that you don't understand and then just, like, assume 
but that it sounds must like not arty, be worth understanding. But that you know? sounds like an arty kid wrote that. I don't know. I'd be interested to see who wrote it. Was it like? It wasn't like, like a angry, young person handwriting. Was it like it was like an angry dad, or was it like a teenager? Oh, it for sure. I feel like it was somebody who I think it was an angry took dad. one too many years of art school and just was like, "I'm so tired of these people that I'm around." Yeah, like because I yeah I get the feeling of that where they're like, "Let me tell you what the real art is." Right, and there. it's pictures of landscapes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I got the. That's a th- a thing that people say about things that they don't understand a lot that they're pretentious. And I noticed that I used the word pretentious earlier in the podcast, and I was talking about people saying candidate rather than student. Oh yeah. But, uh, but then I realized that I was wrong. Oh. So I think that every time maybe people use the word pretension. It used to mean one thing, and now it means something else. It used like, to mean like when the- you said decimate, but you didn't mean that. Uh, take down by ten percent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I suppose. Wait, wait, wait. So what did pret- what did pretentious used to mean? It meant literally yeah. that you were pretending something, that you were pretending an identity or a stance or a, uh, you know, to to falsify a, a perspective or whatever. And now it just means to say something that makes somebody else uncomfortable about their intellect. Yeah, which is annoying. That's interesting. Wait, I'll, I'll go back. Does or to assume that you're smart. Well, decimate yeah. comes from the, um, the way that the Roman armies would uh, punish... Uh, legions that were guilty of uh, what they considered cowardice. They would take oh, uh, one that. soldier out of ten and execute them. I had, that's really interesting. I like D D E C Deca. Yeah. yeah. So I when you say decimate, it just means to reduce by ten percent. Well, yeah. that is cool. That could be pretentious, but I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the film Paths of Glory is about a, uh, a sort of madman general in France in World War One who gets the idea of punishing his soldiers in, in this traditional way. And uh, vintage. Yeah. I think I think what it is about pretentious, too, as a term is that it assumes an intent on the part of the speaker that is always reflectant. Uh, or re- reflecting the other person's opinion. Like, so they assume that just because you're saying something, it must mean because you're trying to create an effect or or make yourself seem better than you are, as opposed to, like, expressing a genuine interest. Because God forbid someone have a genuine interest in anything or, like, feel passionate about anything at all. Like, I don't know. I guess I see, I've always seen pretentious as, like, somebody who is doing something to seem a certain way. So, like, yeah, pretending yeah. that yeah. Like, they're doing it to seem a certain But they're way m- without... necessarily in, like, an elevator. Doesn't not, in yeah. Our, to seem, yeah, to seem like that they're smarter or cooler. Yeah. Or... But without an understanding of why they're doing mm. it or um, yeah. without a passion behind it. Or the yeah. thing, either. What's the difference between pretentious yeah. and officious? I don't even know. what. I don't know if I could use officious Officious is like you're just, like, into your... Uh, Somebody who cares way too much about their paperwork job. and rules. And... Okay. Oh, so no. Okay. Never mind. That's different. Well, the sentence I would use is when Lewis Black is talking about how he was hungover and he accidentally brought a Zippo lighter and uh, in his carry-on. <laughs> and he's like, and the woman pulled out and she's running around. He has a lighter. Blah, blah. <laughs> and he's like, and then this officious prick shows up. And that was the first time I heard it in a sentence. It's the opening uh-huh, line of good. it's the opening line of The Shining, the novel. Oh, oh really? Officious oh. little prick. Yeah. Yeah. It, describing the guy that gives him the job. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's what Lewis Black was quoting or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, or maybe it only appears I don't, I doubt in the it. phrase "officious prick." <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great right. phrase. I actually, I wonder if it's. I don't think he's. Did you know that scientifically, the most satisfying phrase in the English language is "officious prick"? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this plastic bag and the phrase "officious prick" are the most beautiful things I've ever seen. <laughs> Okay, so to get back to the topic of the podcast, I would like Eric, if he's willing, to tell us about a maternal or paternal or pregnant feeling he's experienced or, or an it would experience be, you've had. It would be cat-related as well. Okay. Um, but the one that's most in my mind isn't of the two cats that I've, I was going to say, fathered. Yeah, I've sired seven cats. <laughs> Um, although I have, I have very, uh, yeah, paternal. <laughs> I love it, the phrase siring. I think that people need to, Andre, Andre sired yes, one child. You're child. in a perfect position to use that phrase <laughs> yeah. as much as you want. I could definitely see you over the water cooler at, at work just being like, 
<laughs> I sired my child. Mm. No, I, sired I, I do heir. intend to uh, introduce the kid in the future as my issue. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, my progeny. And then they will they will introduce you two as my issues. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So tell me tell me your story. Um. So recently, uh, I was at a bar that sucks, and everyone Ooh, left. Name names. What was the bar? I don't know if I want to. What if I end up there again when I'm drunk? Nobody listens to this. It's okay. It's fine. Nobody listens to the show. Uh, it's called the Owl. Oh, everybody oh, knows that. Everybody sucks. knows. Yeah, the Owl. Yeah, that bar um, exists because it sucks. Yeah. Well, I like because we uh, one of their Andre was involved. <laughs> Um, he went straight in, then he went all the way in, all the way to the back through this crowd, and then turned around and came out. This and was, was like, I'm ni- too old for this shit. This was the <laughs> night that uh, we were, uh, a movie I had shot for Alex Phillips was yeah. um, uh, screened at the um, Chicago Underground Film Festival. Yeah. And after the screening, we went to the Owl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, there's other stuff in there, that story, but it's not no, worth telling. Okay, so go so then, And then I... Then we couldn't find him, Andre, I think. And then so like Alex and Emma and I spent time longer trying to find Andre only to learn that he'd walked straight in and straight out without. uh, It was a terrible bar. Yeah. So he'd already left and he was (laughs) long gone. And then they're like, yeah, let's go too. And then I was like, well, I came all the way here. I want a beer now. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you should do it. You should do it, man. Drink a beer. <laughs> do it. This is peer pressure. Yeah, <laughs> you're, they're not. Uh, you're not a chicken. They're a turkey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? Uh, the drug. Oh, yeah. oh. Okay. Proceed. Um. So I was there having a beer, and then my friend was like, "How do you rescue a kitten?" By a text message, and so I start responding that, and then there was this guy talking to me and I couldn't tell if he was just being friendly or trying to hit on me. And then I was like, uh, my friend just texted me. There's like a kitten meowing. And then <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> this is all, so, I assume at like two in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, cause she's, you know, I was like, she's like, how do you rescue kitten? I'm like, well, uh, tell me more, you know? And then she's like, there's a, there's a kitten in the bushes that's been meowing. And then I wanted, you know, I'm like, what's the situation? And so I'm, but this guy talks to me and then I said that and then he goes, well, what's the situation? <laughs> so I start, you know, ask her what's going on. And then he's like, all right, I'll catch you later. I'm going to go, you know, wander around. And then, so I get more into what's going on. And I'm like, was well, the mother around? Because, you know, maybe they're just hungry and I don't really know what's going on. Then at one point I was like, is there multiple kittens? What's going on? And then this other dude's like with his friends they're also a little bit too old and mature to be at the bar too. And then he's like, how's your night treating you? And I'm like, I'm rescuing a kitten. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like I can't talk anymore. So I'm just like doing that and reading online. Like, okay, what do I do? And I'm like, we have to act now. This like life is in danger. And then I was like, hold on. I'm taking, I'm taking a lift there. So I drop, I finished my beer and drop. Well, I guess I didn't drop everything. Cause I finished my beer and then I like chugged it or whatever. <laughs> you <laughs> took care of business. I took care of business. I took this long drink of it and I like wiped the foam off my mouth with my arm. And then I was like, ah, let's go save a life. Yeah. Um, but we went there and then the kitten was there. And then she was like, some guy's threatening her. My friend, she's like saying like, it's my kitten. And then she's like, or the guy's like, you have like 10 seconds to get the fuck out of here or <gasps> something. What? And she's like, and I was like, oh my God, what's, you know. She's like, well, I'm in the doorway now because I don't know what this guy's up to or what's going on. She's like, but the cat, the cat wouldn't, you know, was like running away from him. And I was like, good. And I'm like, I'm on the way. And I was like, bring a towel. So we get there and then sure enough, it's like, meow, meow, meow. And like it saw me and then I got a little closer and then she ran away. But she had, it was just this so sad because yeah. <laughs> she's just at the top of her lungs, but they're so tiny, but it's loud and tiny. It's just like, um, and then this like fear. the baby is moving while you're telling this story because oh. I think he's like resonant. He's he knows. Oh, so sweet. <laughs> no, he doesn't know. He's just. He's a, we should have gotten a fifth pair of cans to put on the. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> like you said, you assign your baby. I know. Motivation. <laughs> I do. It's not good. It's not maybe. Helping, but I do it anyway. I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a psychic. Yeah, I don't. Um, finish the story. But, but this <laughs> whole thing of like the like the kitten was like. 
I'm, I'm calling out for help. I need help. But then I'm like scared of help. And then it's like, there's this person and it's like, can I trust him? And like, cause she'd run away if I walked step closer, you know, cause my friend's coming back down and I'm like, I'm here. I'm checking, you know, like I got out of the car. I'm like running around. <laughs> like, where's mm-hmm. the cat? Um, but this like, so she'd like scamper away and then she'd come back and then, you know, it was just like intense. How and- little was this kitten? Like, like how many weeks do you think? I don't know. Um, like less than eight? Probably around. Well, because that was part of it. I was like later trying to compare to a chart to see like, well, is she big enough to eat whole food? Mm-hmm. Which turned out she was. But then there's the question of like. Yeah, but she just can't afford to shop at Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but she was a little bit underweight, you know, because she's living on the streets and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. So she was like a little bit. Well, I think eight weeks is when you're old enough to be handled mm-hmm. and maybe have the uh, surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, spay and neuter your pets. Unless you're in Europe. Unless, Unless you're, in, you're Europe, in Europe. And what you should and you do. You need like a nice marble floor. Yeah. Wait, were we? Was that live? No, that wasn't live. Oh, okay. okay. Go on. If we'll you're in Europe, your put your balls on a marble floor. <laughs> <laughs> um. So she's somewhere, she's a few weeks old. Um, but that was part of it. Cause I didn't want to like feed or I'm like, I think she's big enough to get whole foods as a meal, not a uh, market. Um, but then some of the stuff I was reading was like, you know, all the different complications and it can be bad for them. And then also like, you can't just give them milk, milk, you know, like you need special kind, like it can't be stuff you have laying around and that can give them diarrhea and then they're dehydrated and all this. So I was like, I don't know what to do. And then I was telling that to the shelter when we brought her in and they were like, ah, she's going to have diarrhea anyway. She's a kitten. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. That's like a thing you have her. to deal with is like the like grossness of it. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And so we, we, we got her and she was, when my friend came, she was a little bit more trusting of my friend cause she'd been there for a while, talk, you know, talking to her and all that. And finally got her. Uh, she was trying, you know, because again, she would run away from us and then meow for us to come find her. And then, um, like, I picked her up and she freaked out and, like, wormed out of the way. But we were able to corner her. <laughs> and I wrapped her in a blanket. And, um, you know, we brought her right up straight into the bathroom. Because that's the other thing. If you're rescuing an animal, you don't want it to come into contact with your animal. My friend sure. has a cat. Like, if it has fleas or anything like that. Um, so we brought her straight in the bathroom. Something I learned where I volunteer. And... You know, reading online, I checked her feet because you're supposed to feel their paws. And if they're cold, then that means they're cold, you know. Aww. So that's and I was also like, I could just squeeze her little toes and it's for a medical <laughs> purpose. So she was fine like that. And um, yeah, I don't know. By then, like, you know, I'm like sweating and it's crazy. It's the middle of the night. And like I was holding her and then she like nuzzled up to me. And it really felt like I just like delivered a baby or something because, you know, we're running around and then I'm like. You're exhausted. Yeah. She snuggled up to you. Yeah. And then it's just this like urgency of like, you know, like really that sound of her meowing and like that, you know, it gets you like, you're like this, you know, this, like, cause I'm, she, my friends, I don't know what to do. And she's been there a couple days and there's no mom. So, okay. We know it's not either. She ran away and got lost or, you know, like she's not in the nest. She's just out in these little bushes. And it's just this, like, we have to act now. You know, like Mm -hmm. this is like she won't she might not survive the night. So Uh I don't know. Just being all hot and sweaty and having this like little kitten and she's like soaking up your warmth and stuff. And I was just like, oh, my God. And like my friend was thinking at the same time. So we're like, I feel wow, we just like delivered a baby. Yeah. (laughs) I feel parental listening to it. Yeah. So that I don't know. Um, I've had a lot of great experiences with pets and stuff. But like that is probably the most intense maternal paternal nurturing thing like it did yeah it just felt life force related yeah i admire people looking after animals in this way though i i really don't like when people especially on the internet refer to fur babies oh i hate that it's because there's like they want to get it you can feel them asking for attention through it yeah it's just like I yeah I'm I'm perfectly happy being like yeah I have a cat and I that can bring out paternal instinct and that's not 
weird or something like i don't need to it's be like good. i'm a cat daddy like yeah. it's yes no i feel that these things are different from each other we <laughs> well, want I'll say that them to be, be funny, different but... from yeah. each other the worst episode of house hunters i've ever seen is where this one i think andre was there where this guy was like i'm a doctor and the, and the woman was like and i'm a stay-at-home pet mom and i was just like <laughs> oh, oh lord that's, that's pretty an hilarious, excuse though. to stay home <laughs> i was like yeah. dude just say you're a kept woman i will admire you <laughs> like or it's... just i'll have a lame jerk what yeah. Why, why, yeah. why doesn't anybody self-identify as a it's lame jerk anymore? Just say you're yeah. a housewife. It's fine. Like, yeah. Even though you don't have any kids, like it's okay. It's she fine. just gave herself a task. She identified these pets need me to be home constantly. Yeah, I was just like, oh no. I mean, I do think it's funny to say cat daddy, but if I'm being cat daddy, cat daddy is cat, pretty cool. daddy. cat daddy sounds like a great jazz name. Yeah. Oh, cat daddy's back. Yeah, I guess cat daddy on the sex. Cab Calloway will be playing Eric in the movie. I love it. I love Cab Calloway. Yeah. Um, cat Calloway. Cat, yeah. Cat, cat, a cat. Yeah. Cat, cat, a cat, cat. That's how cat, 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 meow. That's how cat daddy speaks. I kind of just want to end now. Can I, I want to know more about this guy who was claiming that the cat was his at like, whatever, like three in the morning. He's like, this cat's mine. Yeah. Well, I never saw him, but I was, so I was super amped up at that point where I was like, dude, not getting this cat. This is fucking bullshit. Like, and I'm texting her. I'm like, I'm like, we'll call the police. Like, I was just like, we are saving this cat. I will fuck some shit up. Was was he like, okay. Was he like, was it his cat? Did his cat get out? No. He was just like. Just cat greedy. Just yeah like, well that was so that running was, around that's... trying to take cats no that was that was my friend's like a cat thought. prospector yeah no like she literally thought that he might be like just trying to get it to like sell the cat or something oh because they're God. i've been like in humboldt park and they'll they'll be like people like their cat had kittens and they'll be like selling the cat kittens and then you're like they're way too young to be handled by people you say that to people in Hum- no, humboldt I think park that. you're like I'm like cat police. Wait, okay, so how I am gonna end the episode and I want everyone to end to do to sit just say cat daddy into the microphone. No 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 in a row. So Eric, Shannon, Andre, oh, okay. me. Cool. Oh, okay. Cat daddy. Cat daddy. Cat daddy. Cat daddy. Cat daddy.